Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can't tell you, since we last spoke, Ireland, where I live, has gone a bit sort of Oscar crazy. Well, it's all about Ireland. It's, it? It, it does just, seem to be all it, about Ireland. It's just that if you look, you're one of the few people in Ireland who hasn't been nominated for an Oscar. I don't want to rub it in there, Alex. But you know. well, you say that, but I'm hoping that if I just show up on the night, <laughs> something might happen. It was actually being mooted. I mean, I I don't want to say seriously, but then you know, it might have been seriously that they should simply transfer the Oscar ceremony to a conference centre just outside Dublin. Brilliant. And have an Irish um, comic doing it. Precisely so. You know, it would save everybody's carbon footprint, really, wouldn't it? It would. They could just go down the road. I read some amazing statistic that is it a quarter of the best actor and actress, as it were, nominations are Irish. Can that be true? Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. Probably. It's an awful lot. I think it's 14, isn't it? It's 14 in total. And obviously... The Banshees of Inisherin, you know, dominate that sort of narrative. But here, there was a lot of focus on Anquilin Kuhn, The Quiet Girl, which is the film that is Irish language. It's the first time an Irish language film has been nominated in the best foreign film category. And it is, you know, very interesting, particularly to us, because it is an adaptation of Claire Keegan's short story, Foster. And boy, is it a wonderful film. And anyway, they were so excited on Irish radio where they were indeed suggesting that we have alternative headlines. People were writing in their alternative headlines, the best one being Ireland Goes Oscar Wilde, I thought. <laughs> That's very nice. I thought that That's was very, very good. good. I wondered about 14 Shades of Green, but I think that's a bit, <laughs> it's not quite as good, is it? But they went to 
the cinema where all the cast and crew of Angry Lincoln were waiting to hear the nominations. And there was great celebration. And they had the little girl because the central character is mm. this little girl. And they asked her, you know, would she have to go back to school afterwards at a party? And she said, no, no, school's over for today. I can stay out of school, but I do have to go back in tomorrow because I've got to be back for the rehearsals for the school play. Wow. Wow. Can you believe that? From Oscar nomination back to the school <laughs> play. And they said, what are you doing? It's the sound of music. And she's Marta von Trapp. That's totally. Which one is Marta? The little one? No, not the little one. The second littlest one, I think. Right. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, I imagine she'll be pretty good. I imagine she might. <laughs> can you imagine if you were acting <laughs> alongside her? There you are, sort of being Julie Andrews. You'd be a bit, you'd want to be on your metal, wouldn't you? You really would. Yeah, but it's probably good, you know. It's good to sort of go, yeah, this is going to be a great school play. Yes, of course we've got an Oscar-nominated person <laughs> yeah, of here. Of course, it really sets the bar high for other schools, let's yeah. be honest. And it is a, a marvellous film that I, you know, thoroughly recommend to anyone. And obviously we recommend the book Foster. And then news that small things like these, Claire Keegan's book, a shortlisted novel, which we've talked about on this podcast several times, is to be filmed in New Ross, near where I live, where the book is set, uh, and mm-hmm. Dublin, with Killian Murphy taking the kind of central. Are you going to be Berlong. hanging around there by any chance? You know, just happen to be there. I tell you what it is. I mean, it is the place I might go to do the big Tesco's shop. I don't very often find myself in New Ross, but I might go to the smokehouse to pick up a bit of fish and possibly stop in at the big Tesco. And so I might find myself doing that rather more frequently. You might bump into Killian Murphy in front of the frozen food aisle. Precisely. I might find need to examine my club card points very closely. And there we are. So it's great. It's very exciting. Very exciting news. Yes, it's really exciting. And the, and the Banshees have been a share in has got just lots of nominations all round and seems to be a wonderful thing. To my shame, I must admit, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm I'm going to. Well, particularly if you like a donkey. Love a donkey, actually. We've got a review of a film about a donkey in the TLS this week, EO. I'm sorry, that just made me think about it. You can't have too many donkeys, can you? I must say, I did read a very, very, very interesting piece by Mark O'Connell in this week's New Statesman about the sort of 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 Martin Madonna, the film's creator and director. Mm. And, you know, what was particularly interesting, I think, was this idea because he grew up in the UK, but so much of his work is set in the West of Ireland. And this idea of whether you are sort of subverting, you know, cliches and tropes or reconfiguring them. It was a really fascinating piece. And I do think it's something that definitely when I saw the film, I thought about quite a lot. I thought about, you know, there is, and in fact, somebody I know in Ireland who hasn't seen it said to me, well, should I see it or is it a bit bigosh and bigora? And I said, well, you know, I couldn't lie. I think it is a bit. So anyway, Lucy, go and see it and report back. I will, I will. It always makes me think this is completely tangential and I'm afraid not about books or films, but I always just think that about the Pogues. They were re, some of them were first generation Irish and some of them are second generation but a lot of them, I think. You wonder, are they repackaging? Is it nostalgia? Is it just a different sort? I just, I thought it was jolly interesting. I think if I were to be doing a PhD thesis, though unlikely event, I think it would be really interesting to look not just on that, you know, on the idea of the second generation Irish. And, you know, I'm married to, this is how I come to be in Ireland. I'm married to a second generation Irishman who's, you know, we've returned to the home place. But it would mm. be actually on on how much of the memory is created by the long summer trips back to relatives. It's, it's a very sort yeah. of 
specific kind of memory. Yeah. However, this is all for another podcast, isn't it? <laughs> this is about our second generation <laughs> island podcast. So sorry, West everybody. Cork, actually. Yes, quite. Should we uh, should we get on with what's on the show? We probably should. I wanted to do one little reminder because we haven't done it for ages to remind all you lovely listeners to get in touch with us and say hi and tell us what you're reading or what you're thinking or what you think we should be doing. Write us a letter. It could be an email, of course. would be at letters at the-tls.co.uk or write us a letter. It may even get to us. Lucy, I think you also, and listeners, I'm now in your position. Lucy had some news about an exciting collaboration. And she said to me, shall I tell you before or do you want to react <laughs> in the book? So I'm going to do actual reacting now. Okay. It's not my news. It's just something I saw on LitHub. And actually, it just reminded me because last week, do you remember last week we were talking about Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, because I made you talk about that film, The Lost City, briefly. Yes. So this week I learned that from LitHub, the website, Channing Tatum is writing a romance novel with Roxane Gay. How good is that? Oh, no, that is good. And also, if you were having your sort of literary news bingo card, would that really have come up? Those three things, the romance novel and the two two co-writers? No, you would not have guessed it. So I'm very pleased about that, and I'm looking forward that to it. That sounds fascinating. Doesn't it? But we should crack on with what we're supposed to be cracking on with, I believe. Oh, yeah. Coming up on this week's show is what you're urging me to say. Well, we've been talking about banshees, and we're going to talk about Mother Earth, Ladies of the Night, hags, fairy queens. Are they supernatural figures as ancient as the hills, or are they creations of the Victorian era? We shall find out. And Ruth Skur, biographer of Robespierre, John Aubrey and Napoleon, joins us to focus on a collection of photographs assembled by the late, great Janet Malcolm. But first, we're going to talk about fairies, night wanderers and pagan goddesses, figures which have persisted throughout centuries from our ancient folklore onwards, despite the dominance of Christianity. Or have they? We're discussing the ideas behind a new book by Ronald Hutton called Queens of the Wild, Pagan Goddesses in Christian Europe, an Investigation. Elizabeth Thurnley, whose most recent book is Fearsome Fairies, published last year, has written about this for us and joins us now. Elizabeth, many thanks for joining us. Hello there. Hi. You start your piece with an excellent and probably quite salutary anecdote from 1595 about a fortune teller called Judith Phillips. Can you tell us what happened? So this is one of my favourite stories from the book, and Hutton retells it in his chapter on the figure of the Fairy Queen. So Judith Phillips was a fortune teller who rather took advantage of people's desire to believe in fairies in 16th century England. So she was a gunmaker's wife from London who also went by the alias Doll Pope, and she had a series of scams that were designed to make people give up their valuable possessions as offerings to the fairies. So in 1595, we hear in a report at the time that she was arrested in London for persuading a wealthy widow to offer a chicken and a turkey to the queen of the fairies in order to win her favour. So Judith then suggested that the widow might want to put all the gold objects that she owns in one place to help the fairy queen reveal some money that would be hidden in the house. But at this point, the widow realised that actually it might be her gold objects that would go missing next. And so she (laughs) raised the alarm. But then it turned out that in the investigation that Judith had actually done this again in Hampshire uh, and she'd been even more successful. So she'd convinced this rich man living there that she could summon the Queen of the Fairies for him if he'd performed this rite which involved laying out gold coins under five candlesticks. So once he'd done that, 
She just went out of the room, came back in again, wearing a white smock and waving a wand, and apparently completely convinced him that she was, in fact, the fairy queen. So <laughs> the report tells us that Judith then engaged in, quote, some dalliance with him, and then she ran off with all of the gold. Yeah, she was very enterprising. Clever, clever woman. <laughs> Incredibly enterprising. It's just this amazing story. And what's even more amazing is that she wasn't the only person that did this. So there were several other cases reported around the same time, which presumably suggests that there were actually more cases than were ever reported, because if this happened to you, you'd probably be quite embarrassed that you fell for it and you wouldn't want to tell anybody. So it was a fairly widespread 16th century scam. Mm. And talks about it as being one of the more striking proofs that fairy belief was widespread in England at the turn of the 17th century. I suppose wherever there is a belief in something otherworldly or supernatural or, or mythical, there is always somebody willing to kind of exploit, I suppose, people's desire, as you say, to believe in that. So these these kind of scams and pretenses are old as anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what you say. Taking people just want to believe that these things are true, so they'll they'll basically interpret the events to to bolster that belief. And people like Judith, obviously, took advantage of this. Mm. It's really interesting as well that you say in the piece that belief in fairies and the fairy queen, particularly at that point, was quite strong. And as you say, obviously, people did want to believe in her. And I'm not sure if it's you that says this or Hutton's book, that they have influenced not least by stories from Spencer and Green and from Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. So fairies are really popular in Elizabethan England, and there's loads of examples of literary depictions of these in Spencer's The Fairy Queen, for instance. The example we're most likely to know today is probably Shakespeare's The Midsummer Night's Dream, but the fairy king Oberon appears in other places as well. The Scottish writer Robert Green, for instance, his play a history of James IV. And of course, it helped that there was a real life female monarch on the throne at the time. So there were a limited number of actual historical models of Queen Elizabeth. Obviously, female queens didn't come around that often. So when people were designing uh, ways of celebrating the queen, masks and entertainments and so on, they looked towards female queens and female goddesses for myth and legend. So the fairy queen was really useful in that respect. So celebrating and believing fairies could actually be a patriotic act as well. So again, that all fed into this belief in the the strength of this figure of the fairy. Mm. And you point out that this belief in, and also sometimes what could turn into a fear of, you call it subversive, matriarchal, potentially sinister pagan beliefs that has stayed with us. Certainly it stayed with us in the form of a well-known strain of horror films. Yeah, so the example that Hutton touches on briefly is the film The Wicker Man from Mm. 1973. And that's when he talks about it, he mostly focuses on the conflict we've got in that story between Sergeant Howie, who is the the very devout, straight-laced Christian policemen and the people of Summer Isle who practice what's initially presented as this older pre-Christian religion celebrating sex and fertility. And as he said, this is a trope we see again and again in, in folk horror, the idea that in these remote locations there might be the quote-unquote old ways that are just beneath the surface of civilization. And I'd, I'd have loved Hutton to spend more time looking at this in, in horror. I mean, it's not a book about horror films, so clearly he had to limit himself and couldn't include everything. But I would have loved to have seen what he'd done with Midsummer, for instance. I mean, from The Wicker Man to Midsummer, and goodness knows how many points in between, I mean, so much of it is to do with sex and desire, isn't it? It's to do with the sort of bewitching nature of a lot of these spirited women. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the awful boyfriend in Midsummer is called Christian as well. I mean, that's surely not a coincidence, you know, it is again setting up this, this opposition. So Heaven doesn't go as far as Midsummer, but what he does do is look at the history of this idea and its relationship with Christianity over the centuries and the way that it's been perceived. So the idea that there's been this ongoing opposition in Christian Europe between this repressive, orthodox Christian belief system that was put in place by the elite and this suppressed, quote unquote, pagan religion of the people that was much more sex positive and feminist and joyful was an enduring cultural myth for a lot of the 20th century between about 1890-ish and 1970. And so the opening chapter of the book, What is a Pagan Survival? It really digs into this idea. And Hutton defines pagan in the book as the umbrella term for what he calls the ancient pre-Christian religions of Europe. So he does just talk a bit about what we mean by paganism as well. Mm-hmm. He does define it a bit. That was one of the things that was really fascinating about it, that you say it's enduring from about 1890 onwards. So basically the the idea, that juxtaposition and the idea that in certain places there are the old ways which have been going on all that time, was basically a late Victorian creation. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Yeah, so Hutton argues there's a couple of major factors that contributed to this. So firstly, after the Industrial Revolution, British society urbanised incredibly rapidly, and this led to people feeling disconnected from the countryside, both geographically and psychologically as well, from these rural ways of life. And that in turn led to anxieties about, you know, what's happening in these out-of-the-way places that, you know, perhaps you're not familiar with. And secondly, he suggests that the Church of England became much less dominant. And so mainstream society became more open to the idea of other faith traditions. So he argues that both of these factors made the idea that ancient paganism had survived in Britain for for a lot longer than had previously been believed was a particularly attractive one. And the other thing is that in Britain in particular, these ideas were taken up by various scholars whose ideas got into the popular imagination and thus became accepted as a kind of fact. So one of the most notorious examples of this is Margaret Murray. So she was an Egyptologist from UCL and she wrote a couple of books in the 20s and 30s about what she called the old religion of witchcraft and she described this as this joyful matriarchal religion that included feasts and dancing, animal sacrifices, human sacrifices, sex rituals, And she claimed that the majority of people kind of quietly allied themselves with this belief system to a greater or lesser extent until the end of the Middle Ages. And even though there are a lot of historians at the time that pointed out that she misunderstood the evidence in witch trials, there were plenty of others who accepted it. And in 1929, she got invited to write the entry for witchcraft in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And this, of course, popularised ideas with the wider public. So they were really influential in popular histories until around the 60s and 70s, when people did more systematic studies that actually showed there wasn't any evidence of these theories. And just going back to The Wicker Man again, which was made in 1973, so just at the tail end of all of this, that's exactly what happened on Summerisle. So there's a scene where Lord Summerisle is saying that his Victorian grandfather basically invented the pagan religion that the islanders practice. So if you look at it within this, this wider context, the idea of these pagan goddesses, it's much easier to see how people could be ready to believe the idea that figures like Mother Earth or like the Fairy Queen could have perhaps been worshipped as deities as well. 
Well, it's fascinating because it then sort of segues a little bit, doesn't it? As you say, via things like the Wickerman into this idea of of the creation of cults and of of sort of religions in which everybody is basically bowing down to one very powerful, well, generally man. But these kind of female-based legends are the ones that are being invoked. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sort of creating a plausible sounding narrative to some historical or archaeological evidence that might or might not uh, support what you want to say, but you, you mm. know, you'll interpret it that, that way anyway. And as you say, in this case, it's it's looking at female figures that are perhaps you mentioned and suggesting that they there might have been these cults surrounding them. So for instance, if you, if you found a Neolithic symbol that might, if you kind of squinted at it, look a bit like a breast or like an eye, and you had this theory that Neolithic societies worshipped a a mother goddess, then you'd look at this as proof. And it would be believable because it, it would strike a chord with whatever people wanted to believe about these, these past civilizations. Mm. And then you just keep looking for more evidence of you know, breast symbols, eye symbols, and you ignore anything that doesn't fit your theory. And then the whole thing just snowballs. We were just talking before, weren't we, about the banshees of Inner Sharon, Lucy, yeah. at the top of the show. And of course, the figure of the banshee in that film is absolutely central to sort of, you know, as a kind of add-on and what people will or won't believe. And actually, you know, a psychological relationship is going on between two people. A dynamic is going on, but the banshee is kind of invoked somehow. Oh, so I haven't seen that yet. It sounds like it's absolutely up my street. I need to need to see it. But yeah, that's really interesting. Elizabeth, we don't know one another, but I'm just, I'm getting, I think it might be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I just think it's such an interesting idea that you can make the myths that then more or less create the myths that then sort of create their own, as you say, sort of backstory for hundreds and hundreds of years. And also, as you say, it's, it's the stuff that people want to believe. So the witch trial stuff, it's much more interesting and thrilling, isn't it? If the witches are all dancing around naked and having sex with their familiars and making people do what they want than what the historians, as you say, later said, no, that didn't happen. Actually, they were misunderstood people who were horribly treated and tortured. But the idea that you can create an idea because people like the idea and that that will validate it backwards is completely fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's constructing these fantasies of the past. And of course, people want to believe in because it creates this nice ancestry for them, perhaps. And they they look at themselves and their position to all of that. And it, it might validate their own position. So, so yeah, Hutton really explores that in, in the book, uh, I think particularly perhaps at the in the beginning chapter. And he's looking at, you know, who's making these myths as well. People like Margaret Murray, people like the Folklore Society in the 1890s, who, again, they had this slightly vested interest in talking about the quote-unquote primitive peoples who might live in the countryside who might believe these weird and wonderful things and so they can kind of pat themselves on the back and say well you know of course I don't believe all those things but I like to think that people do believe it so it's a really interesting exploration of the myths about myth making as you say. Mm, it reminds me this is off course and it just it reminds me of the um all the witches in Terry Pratchett's book there's quite a lot of bits where one of them comes around and or a new one will come around and go should we take our clothes off and dance around the fire <laughs> and the others sort of look at her and go it's a bit cold can we just <laughs> can we just have a cup of tea Lucy you've you've done it you've got your weekly mention of Terry Pratchett oh I didn't mean to it's just <laughs> it seems germane to me 
<laughs> and Hutton, as you say, he also says there's, there's nothing wrong with grouping old figures together as symbols for new concerns. And he suggests a figure like the Green Man. And actually, that can be a very powerful thing to do to start a sort of new movement and a very interesting thing to do to, to ally with modern concerns. But he says it's, only, it's troublesome if we do claim that they're revealing these ancient mysteries that just weren't there. Yeah, absolutely. They can be really useful using these sorts of figures. So the final chapter of the book actually looks at the figure of the green man. So that leafy face you often see carved in churches. And he uses this as a much more recent example to show how theories about these figures can develop. So much like the goddess figures, the mythology about the green man being some sort of ancient vegetation deity is based on this single 1939 article that suggested this as a hypothesis. But again, it caught on because it was this really plausible and also a very attractive explanation for what these carvings were doing there in the first place. And in a certain sense, yeah, it's not a problem to take these leafy faces and see them as an expression of the human relationship with nature or whatever it is that you want to say. But it is a problem if, I'm quoting him here, those who embrace such beliefs back project them onto the past, because then you know you are remoulding the past in this image that reflects well on whatever world you want to hold about yourself. Yes. I suppose it also obscures actually finding out what they really were, at least in the sort of wider culture. You know, the scholarship that might go into actually really examining these things very closely. If a single narrative gets taken up that's sort of perhaps rather kind of simplifying and flattening the historical reality, we kind of lose sight of that, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do like these stories that make sense. I mean, you know, humans are storytelling animals, obviously, and we like to put things into an, an order that makes sense, which can be incredibly positive, but misleading as well. And I think we get, you know, if we don't know what something means, and that as well is, is kind of troubling for us. So we, we want to pin a meaning on it somehow. And so we look for what we want. It just seems to me it's like things like, you know, werewolves and vampires and all that sort of thing. They kind of well up every now and again. Do you think that's a, I mean, I know that this is examining the goddesses. So so we're looking at the, you know, the fairy queens and things like that. But the ideas well up and there's a lot of interest and, yeah, belief washing around. And then they sort of fade back down again. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, they might well up because, I don't know, they speak to some particular wider anxiety that's going on you know if it's vampires or zombies for instance mm. obviously we've just had a pandemic and there's lots of anxiety but there's sort of disease spreading and things so I think they do come up for a reason at various points in time yeah 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 so it's fine to dance around the fire with or without your clothes on <laughs> but let's be clear about why we're doing it I'm not sure if that's the moral to draw but it does sound like a completely fascinating book it really is it's a fascinating study well, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Ruth Skur joins us to look at Janet Malcolm's Still Pictures, a final posthumously published book by the celebrated journalist in which a collection of photographs punctuates insights about the nature and limitations of autobiography. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. I'm Alex Clark. When Janet Malcolm died in 2021, the tributes and obituaries brought to the fore her best-known work as a journalist and critic. Her exploration of the ethics of reportage and true crime writing, The Journalist and the Murderer, and her books about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, Anton Chekhov and Sigmund Freud. But she also wrote extensively on art and was herself the maker of collages. Now comes Still Pictures, a series of reflections centred on photographs. The biographer Ruth Skur has reviewed the book in this week's paper and is here to tell us about it. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you, Alex. I did mention there that you are obviously a biographer. You've written about Robespierre, John Aubrey, and most recently Napoleon and his gardens. And you begin your review by pointing out that Janet Malcolm was sceptical about the form and particularly about autobiography. Can you tell us just a bit more about what form her doubts took? Well, obviously, she's talking, I think, about the crossover between biography and journalism. So she's got very interesting and serious reflections on the way in which writers construct their works. And if you're doing that around the subject of someone else's life, then obviously the interaction between you and a specific other person is extremely intense. I didn't really have that in my own practice because I do historical biographies, Mm. but Janet was very interested in the investigative aspect of biography 
And in a sense, how she characterizes it, you know, the snooping, the rifling through drawers, they're hoping to find out the secrets behind the bedroom door. So that was what she you know, very famously characterized the biographer at their worst as actually trying to do. And then, of course, the genre of autobiography becomes even more complex because there it's your relationship to yourself. It's your self-presentation that is being foregrounded. And she was interested, again, in how that sort of spilled over in the subjects that she wrote about who, you know, they were historical biographies, Chekhov, for example, and his views about autobiography. Well, it's important with the Chekhov book that she doesn't actually present that as a biography. And I think with very good reason, it's a critical journey. And it's very much about engaging with his writing, her personal engagement with his writing and reflections on that. And that's why she begins the book with describing his own autobiographical phobia, as he called it, and the sort of spoof biography that he gave to an editor who wanted to include it in a journal. And she says, look, you know, after Chekhov has has really sort of sent up the genre and said, you know, this is pretentious and impossible thing to do to write about yourself. How can anybody else do something that's less playful? There's a point in the book that really struck me. She's sort of she's sort of pulling it apart, isn't she, even as she's writing about her own life. And there's a bit when she's about to tell you a detail of something and she says, actually, I'm going to withhold this. And I know that's really craven and that's not what I'm supposed to do, but I am going to withhold it because I'm allowed to, which I don't think I've ever read that in a book before. Absolutely. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I think that one of the things I tried to capture in my piece is the amount of withholding. I mean, it's almost the gaps are as interesting as the so-called revelations. And and she's definitely playing with that all the way through. Part of that obviously comes from her very deep interest in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and practice of the narratives that are constructed in that context. And she's very, very deeply aware of that and also it's literary I mean you're absolutely right she said you know I'm the author and um, I get to choose what I put in and I'm just telling you I know the reason and I'm not going to give it to you. Of course getting down to the real brass tacks and the issue of autobiography often immediately comes up to the issue of parents doesn't it and I love that part of your review where you note that she says you know well is there can you really write about your parents because the bedroom door is locked and that is that you're never going to get further than that can you really know what happened and then she remembered that her parents didn't actually have a locked bedroom because they didn't actually share a bedroom ever after you know after they had emigrated from Prague or when they came to the US and that sort of playfulness she kind of stumped herself as it were. Yes absolutely right and it's I thought very interesting how she sort of circles around it I mean the first time she she mentions her mother she says well look I I don't think I'm quite ready to write about my mother yet so I'm just going to write about you know my aunt or my peripheral members of my family and and this will be a sort of warm-up exercise and then there is a chapter on her mother and all of these chapters very very short of course and then she comes back to it with another chapter sort of more on mother almost as though these are sort of cumulative sessions where she's engaging with the memories and shaping the memories and I sort of tried to explain that it's a very important part of the structure of the book I think that each of these pieces is standing alone they're sort of curated they have images almost all of them 
and sometimes there's quotes from other writers or from letters, but they are like collages on the page. And do you think she almost thought of the writing as sort of, I suppose, captions in a way, very extended captions and very detailed captions to go with these pictures at an exhibition? Oh, no, I don't think she imagined that this would turn into an exhibition of the photographs. And she's very funny about the photographs. I mean, some of them she she sort of selects because they're not very good photographs. Or she's saying, you know, what is everybody wearing in this photograph? This is just a terrible photograph. Mm. And so, no, I don't think this is a sort of run up at all to. Oh, no, I didn't know. I sort of meant it in a kind of figuratively speaking sort of thing that she almost the book was sort of like an exhibition that she was curating. Yeah, well, she's got that box of um, not good photos that she refers to. And Mm. and you get the impression that she's sort of pulling them out. And then if something sparks in her memory or she she wants to come back to it, then it gathers some sort of substance and occasionally she'll look for other things. In that they're sort of, I think they're very reflective. I mean, it is like watching somebody go through their photograph album and, you know, perhaps pick out the things that means something to them. And that doesn't necessarily mean they would a different family member would choose those photographs mm. or somebody mm. even more objective. But they are the ones that actually, when she looked at them, she had something to say about them and she was able to be creative around them. She's also, she's pretty unsparing, isn't she? And she says so sometimes. She does the oh. same kind of thing about her dad that we mentioned earlier. She says, there are other things I could say, but I'm not going to because I just want to, to have these lovely, lovely images of them. But she's quite unsparing about a lot of people and also about herself. There's an extraordinary bit when she says, do you know, when I ask someone a question, even as a biographer, I'm not really very interested in the answer. She's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing, amazing thing to say. She just kind of puts it in there. And it is, it's very funny, but, you know, it's yeah. also pretty bold, isn't it? Well, I think that might be true about quite a lot of people. I mean, this idea that, you know, we are fundamentally interested in ourselves. I mean, always saying this to my daughters, you know, they come and say, oh, I'm so embarrassed because this happened. I said, well, don't think you should worry about that because everybody else in the room will have just been focusing upon themselves. They probably (laughs) didn't even notice. It is that terrible thing when you are as an interviewer listening back to the tape of you talking to your interviewee and you realize that you generally leap in when they're about to reveal something important and I notice myself often you know really carefully curating brilliant brilliant questions that I just think well this is a sort of the high watermark of interviewing and then clearly the interviewee just thinks what the hell is going on here this is just pure <laughs> nonsense they just kind of say they're very polite and I, I suppose that's one way of looking at it and you have to move on so it's quite true we are just utterly self-focused there you are I've just demonstrated it can I just say that we're genuinely interested in what Ruth is saying can I just put that down there for we're the record we're genuinely interested in what you're saying I think Alex you are a very reflective interviewer and that's why you're such a brilliant interviewer that's my view the fact that you've just said what you've just said proves that you really do think about what you're doing when you interview someone well this is marvelous the focus is no longer on Janet Malcolm or indeed Ruth <laughs> it's, on you. it's on me how wonderful I'm going to quickly move us back to my plan has worked I'm going to move us back though to the photographs themselves now obviously you know we're in an audio medium and uh, one doesn't dwell too much on the visual however there are two absolutely beautiful photographs that accompany this piece one of Janet Malcolm's father and one of her as a baby in her mother's arms but again you look at them and think well of course that's partial one is clearly a posed picture the other could be a snapshot but you don't know what efforts her father has 
gone into to curate that kind of composition. It's so interesting, isn't it? You realise immediately that they are just pictures. Absolutely beautiful choices by the TLS. And I was so thrilled when the proof came and those were the ones that had been chosen because I hadn't even really seen them side by side and I hadn't thought about them you know, it relationally like that once they were on the page. But the thing that really struck me is the astonishing composure of Janet as a very small baby. And you look at that photograph and she looks as though she's almost ready to talk and to sort of, she's looking at the camera, she's so alert, she's so interested. And I think they're wonderful choices. You're absolutely right. You're right. She's almost, it, there is a kind of playfulness isn't there in her even then I mean I suppose we can't read too much into a baby's character when it's that little but she is clearly very very interested in what's going on absolutely and I do believe there is continuity between what people are like as very young babies or very young children and how they are later I mean obviously there's huge discontinuities as well but there is something in terms of spirit and attitude and things and I think when I look at that photograph the sharp alertness and also actually joyfulness that is present in that baby's face is really wonderful. I have to ask you about the photograph of the tennis players because this is almost at the other end of the spectrum of a sort of deliberate and composed picture but it's so funny. Yes. Yes, it's wonderful. So that photograph took on a life of its own. The origin is, it's a photograph of two people on a tennis court with their backs to the camera. You can't even see all of them. And um, it sat on Janet's husband's desk for a very long time. And she thought, well, these must be people are very significant to him from the past I don't know about and after a while she asked him and he said oh no um, I just keep that photograph on my desk because it's such a terrible snapshot and um, it you know was going to be chucked out and, uh, and I keep it to remind myself and then she was reviewing a uh, writing about a book on the sort of avant-garde trend in photography for uh, snapshots and uh, the sort of you know inclusion of those into uh, what is considered artful and as a very mischievous joke she included this snapshot as one of the illustrations and it was picked up and referred to in other serious discussions in photographic circles as to what the snapshot can contribute to the art of of photography all the time Janet knowing perfectly well that this was just literally a, a random snapshot and so she ends by sort of saying you know I I built better than I knew and and I really look forward to the day when that snapshot will take up its place in an important collection and I shall take up mine in the annals of horsing around. (laughs) I love that. The horsing around, which is such a great way of saying it anyway, it's important to her, isn't it? That's the playfulness. That's the kind of, there's a lot of wit and humour and kind of slight irony and detachment and stuff. And she was extremely funny. I mean, a lot of people have written about her her pride in her beautiful apartment and her aesthetic and how wonderful that was. And, and I, I remember her once going away, she went to stay with someone and she came back and she said, well, you know, normally when I come back to this apartment, I think, oh, how wonderful to be home and I love it so much and it's so beautiful. But this time I came back and I just thought, oh, what a dump. <laughs> Narrator, it wasn't a dump. Was it? <laughs> it just wasn't a dumb. I mean, her her aesthetic sense. I mean, you write about her, well, her aesthetic absolutism. And I found that really interesting to think about. It made me wonder whether 
taste and morality somehow kind of overlaps when you think about personal writing, whether in a want of a better word, her scruples are not just any moral scruples, but also sort of aesthetic ones that to probe too far is a kind of unforgivable sort of vulgarity. Yeah, certainly she was very attuned to vulgarity and to what she would have considered vulgar either aesthetically or in our interactions with one another or indeed on the page or in you know in life in clothing or porcelain or things. The vulgar and um her rejection of it was definitely important to her but I mean I think what I understood which I hadn't fully understood before from reading this book is that she did question on occasions her own certainty about this sort of absolute aesthetic standard. So she says, look, this is a very interesting topic. I've inclined towards the idea of absolute aesthetic standards, but actually sometimes I just turn away from them. And I think that's very important to remember. She's not a sort of creature in any regard. She's open to the possibility uh, that she has got something wrong or that she will change her mind. Yeah, she mentions that quite a lot, doesn't she? She mentions it, there's a few times she looks back and says, and I realised I was completely wrong, and so I kind of reversed my position. In fact, there's a little bit at the end of one of the chapters called Discussion, where she lays out a little discussion for you. Mm. <laughs> and she she puts a question which you know might be seen as critical, and she answers it, as it were. And sometimes she goes, yes, you're absolutely right, I'm ashamed of myself, <laughs> and just moves on to the next thing. That's very interesting you talk about that. That really did make me think of a therapeutic session or analysis, you know, that sort mm. of being in dialogue, finding out what you think or, or why you think it by being in a dialogue with someone. It's something you're almost, it's a taboo as a critic, though, isn't it? It's, you're almost not allowed to say that you reach judgments that you know are subjective I mean that's a, a sort of given I mean if you're having a response to a work of art but yeah. you then as a critic do think through your position as carefully as you possibly can and you state it and the idea of then disavowing it is sort of well, I don't know it kind of brings the edifice sort of tumbling down in a way doesn't it but of course you do change your mind sometimes or you yeah. see another point of view it's not really so much you think I was entirely wrong to have the response I did but you see another context another angle mm. Absolutely. I mean, I find sometimes my view changes if I reread something, you know, five, ten years later and, and mm. I think, well, you know, that's what I thought then. But actually, you know, I was missing this or not sure I would be quite as confident as that then. But I mean, I think you're right as, as a critic, as a careful critic, you know, you give an honest and carefully considered response to what you're reading or, or watching or, or hearing. And, and Probably that's the best anyone can do. A very interesting example of this is um, the story about Anita Bruckner when she had reviewed Ishiguru's The Unconsoled and really not got it and thought it was, you know, like a lot of people did, a really baffling follow-up to, you know, the success of the booker and remains of the day. And then somehow or other she read it again and she completely changed her mind and she asked to re-review it because she did not want to be on record as having misunderstood mm. the unconsoled. That is taking your job properly seriously, isn't it? I mean, it it really is. I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about Janet Malcolm's collages, which is not a part of her life that I was really very aware of, beyond knowing that they sort of existed. And I read a little bit more about them, thinking about, about talking to you today. I mean, for a start, we should say they weren't a sort of pastime. She showed them. People sometimes said they were they were kind of austere. I wonder what they were like, if you could tell us a bit about what they were like and what space they occupied in her 
working life and mind? So what they look like, they are, I wouldn't say they're austere, they are intricate and often they include fragments of writing. I think the very earliest ones were from papers of her father's who was a psychiatrist. And so she had cut up these papers and she would put them alongside a shape or a photograph cut from a magazine or something. And they have very, very interesting sort of mysterious resonances, lots of gaps. There's one haunting one called The Sun that's got a sort of a crib at the centre of it and no further explanation. And there are a lot of them as well. I mean, she was very funny about that. That became a sort of storage issue for her. And luckily, that most of them during her lifetime could be at the gallery rather than in her studio or her home. So I wouldn't, I mean, austere in terms of colours, perhaps on, you know, they're quite muted. They follow her, what I kind of refer to in the piece as a sort of anti-alchemal um, aesthetic. You know, they're not... Um, glittering or highly coloured but colour was important to her as well and, and and some of them draw on that she also used quite a lot of them to make up bookmarks and that I have actually some of these are extremely precious to me I mean one of them I have has just sort of got a black square red square etc and then it has a cut out word solidarity from a newspaper on it and I absolutely love it I know it would be very very sad if it disappeared but in terms of you know, the meanings of them, they were like in her writing, you know, sometimes things are withheld. You've put me in mind of that wonderful observation you make that you quote from the book of her having and the idea of the sort of precious object and in a sense the idea of it changing over time, her having some gold-rimmed glasses that were her mother's. That's right. They were given to her mother by a fellow Czech friend in New York and there were two sets and they had these gold rims and um, Janet decided to put them in the dishwasher because then lots of the gold would rub off and there would just be little flecks of gold which was more pleasing to her than the heavy thick rims around the top of the glass. I love that detail it made me feel actually I just thought well that means I can put things in the dishwasher <laughs> and convince myself I'm making an aesthetic choice. <laughs> It's very freeing. <laughs> it's liberating, isn't it? It's basically saying, listen, what are you doing? You know, you're not running a museum. If somebody gives you something and you're going to use it in your house, you should use it the way you want to use it. You don't have yes. to be deferential towards a wine glass. You finish by mentioning her daughter Anne's note to the book in which she says that her mother had one last book she wanted to write. What was it? No, no, not book, piece to add to still uh, pictures. So she would have right. done a there was a final chapter. Part. She'd mm. published some of these pieces in The New Yorker and she knew that there was enough for books taking together the ones that had already been published and the ones that she was able to finish. But what her daughter Anne says at the end there is that if she had been able to, she thinks Janet would have wanted to write a conclusion or a, a final chapter which reflected on the importance of photography in her own life. Mm. That's such a sense of loss because that would have been a wonderful thing to have, wouldn't it? I yeah. mean, now we're we're piecing it together from her collage. But to be honest, you get the impression from the other pieces she wouldn't have laid it out all for us, would she? She'd have come at it sideways and she'd Absolutely. have said something funny and she'd have given yeah. us a hint, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, absolutely right. And it would have been brief and very elegant. But as Anne says there, you know, it would have been a wonderful subject for her. And, um, you know, she was someone who she would have written for all the time that she had. I mean, she would have gone on and on and with amazing sort of creativity at the centre of her life. But what a body of work she did leave and so kind of interesting and wide ranging. And obviously, as we talk to you, Ruth, we realise, you know, that you're writing as in a personal capacity as well mm-hmm. about her. Yes, she was a friend of my first husband and I got to know her very well and stayed with her and she she knew my children and she's a very big influence on me and in many respects, a very practical influence because when I stayed with her, she wrote from when she woke up in the morning until midday and on the first morning, she'd say, right, well, I'll, I'll say hello to you because this is the first morning. But for the rest of the week, I won't see you until midday because I will be writing. But then afterwards, we'll go to a gallery or we will go and do something fun and we'll go shopping. And just that repeated structure for writing, the fact you show up at the desk and you sit there at a regular time, that has been incredibly important to me. And I, I'd never witnessed that. I'd never understood that that is what is necessary which is quite stupid of me but I I just hadn't. Well it's also to do with somebody I suppose being able to say that even in a kind of social context I have visitors here but this is my routine and you know it's sort of ring fenced as it were. Yes again it's very liberating because then you're not worried that you're intruding on her or you know she will say you know this is what I need and these are my boundaries and then we're going to have a great time. Ruth, thank you. We've had a great time today talking thank about you. it. If you could just go on much longer. I say, we haven't even talked about the Italian plates. You see, that's a little bit of a tease of you. Go and read the review and indeed Yeah, the we book. should withhold the Italian withhold plates. Withhold the Italian <laughs> plates. But I am in many ways a very shallow person. And I was reading your piece thinking, God, they sound nice. I wonder where you'd, I wonder what they were like and where I'd get those from. <laughs> yeah, where, where can we get them? How do I get her taste? But of course, you know, in some degrees, a whole other podcast is sort of inborn and can't just be imported, I suppose. Ruth, thank you so much. That was just fascinating. And this is a really, really interesting book. And thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Great fun. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. we've got time for this week our thanks go to elizabeth durnley and ruth skirr and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.